Matthew 26. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 30 this morning. Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30. Last week, we experienced a flashback in Matthew's gospel. We backed up to the Saturday before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he and the disciples were enjoying a meal uh, at, a, at the home of a man named Simon. This man was known as Simon the leper, uh, but he was probably should be known as Simon who used to be a leper, uh, a man who Jesus had healed. Uh, that's probably the reason why the disciples were there. They had probably been invited there to celebrate Christ. Uh, the meal was probably in Jesus' honor. And while Jesus and the disciples were lounging at the table, we saw this beautiful act of worship uh, that happened there by a woman named Mary. And Mary was Lazarus' sister, and she anointed Jesus there with a very expensive perfume. The disciples were indignant by this act of worship because in their eyes that worship looked wasteful. Right, we had talked about, I mean, that could have been anywhere from a $12,000 bottle of perfume to a $30,000 bottle of perfume, depending on who you're reading. Um, and so they thought, well, that could have been sold and given to the poor. But Jesus told them that Mary's act of worship was noble because they would always have the poor with them, but they wouldn't always have Jesus with them. And so what Mary had done was anoint him for his burial. He had told them over and over again that he was going to the cross. He had made his fourth announcement that he was going to the cross. And what she had done was get him ready for his burial. And he said that she would be honored wherever the gospel was proclaimed for this great act of worship. And it was from this celebration, right, in Simon's home, that Judas is going to leave and he's going to seek out the chief priests in order to see what they would give him to betray Christ. And they agreed upon a term of 30 pieces of silver. Uh, and to him, that seemed like a good amount of money uh, to give up the Messiah. And this morning, we're back on the journey to the cross. All right, In the timeline of Jesus' final week in his life, we've come to Thursday. And this, where we're at in 17 to 30, this would have been early on Thursday morning. This is the day uh, in uh, the Jewish calendar that the Passover is to be celebrated. And the disciples are going to get that uh, celebration set up for their observance of the holiday. And it's at this meal that Jesus is going to observe a new kind of meal with his followers uh, that's going to represent a different kind of deliverance from slavery and a different understanding of being saved from death. It's what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. But before we get into that, let's pray together. Father, we come before you grateful for the cross of Christ. We come before you grateful that we have a restored relationship with you because of what Jesus was willing to do on the cross. And I pray that we would be like Mary in uh, acts of worship that are extravagant, that other people around us uh, look at as strange. 
but that we would see you as worth every ounce of it. And Lord, as we look at the Passover meal and the Last Supper uh, and even Judas's betrayal, I pray that our hearts would be uh, mindful of our relationship to you. I pray that we would be mindful of this new covenant that we have through Jesus' broken body and His shed blood that restores our relationship with You. And I pray that if there's any here, either in person or in the sound of my voice online, uh, that does not have that relationship with You, I pray that today is the day of salvation for them. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open eyes, open hearts, change people from death to life, and that we would go on in new worship from here and forevermore. Lord, be with us as we study your word. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30. Follow along with me as I read that. So on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. He replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, be, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, so last week I spoke a little bit about the Passover uh, and about the significance of the Passover celebration. I mentioned that it's an ongoing yearly celebration that looks back on how God saved Israel from the last plague that, that he brought upon Egypt. That plague resulted in the death of the firstborn male of each household that didn't have the blood of a spotless lamb painted on the doors and the lentils of their house. And it was this final plague that convinced the Pharaoh to finally release the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And each year, the Passover would have been the first day of this week-long celebration of unleavened bread. And so what I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to give a little bit more information this week about the process that they're going through. Jesus sent them to prepare. This is what they would have been doing, what they would have been preparing for. So toward mid-afternoon on Thursday, right on Passover day, the lambs would have been brought to the temple, uh, to the court, 
where the priests would sacrifice them. And this would have been a very bloody day for the priests. They would take the blood from the sacrifice and they would pass it down a line of priests until it made it to the altar. And there they would pour that out on the altar. And after this, they would take the lamb's fat and they would offer that up as a burnt offering on a different altar. And while the priests were doing this, they would be singing the Hillel, which are the six psalms ranging from Psalm 113 to 118. All right. When those are grouped together and sang together, it's called the Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L. Okay. So at some point during the day, that lamb that you took to the temple to be sacrificed would have been roasted with some bitter herbs. And after sunset, you and whoever that you would be eating uh, and celebrating the Passover with, you would gather together in your home or someone's home and you would eat the Passover lamb. So that lamb that was sacrificed would also be eaten. The head of the home, whoever's house that you were in, uh, would begin the meal with thanksgiving for the feast, right? So they would, they would ask a blessing for the day. And they would pray for the wine by praying over the first four cups. You would drink four cups of wine throughout the process of that feast that day. And there would be a preliminary course of greens and bitter herbs followed by a time of explanation about the exodus. Right? They would remember back to when God saved his people from Egypt. And all the people observing the Passover would then sing part of the first parts of the Hillel. Okay, just like the priests would. Following this, that would all happen at the first cup of wine. Following this, a second cup of wine is introduced with the main course, which is followed by a third cup of wine known as the cup of blessing, which was accompanied by another prayer of thanksgiving. All right, so this is all the stuff that is going into this. Finally, the participants would sing the rest of the Hillel, and then they would drink a fourth cup of wine. All right, so all this is happening at your Passover meal. And all of this had to be set up beforehand. All right, this is an extensive set of preparations. And so you had to get an early start to make sure that you had everything in order before Passover began. And so this is what the disciples are asking Jesus about in verse 17. When they said, hey, where do you want the Passover to happen all of this stuff needs to be in place at that pla- in that house before Passover, the Passover meal begins. And so, Jesus, where do you want to observe the Passover? And Jesus says, if you go into this city, you're going to find a certain man. And it's at his home that they're going to be celebrating the Passover. It's not clear from the text whether Jesus has made plans with this man beforehand or whether this is divine knowledge that this guy is going to be in a certain place at a certain time, and he just says, hey, the teacher needs your house, kind of like he said with the donkey, the teacher needs your colt, right? We don't know exactly what's going on, but either way, it's at this man's house that they're going to have their Passover meal. And so the disciples go, and they do as they're directed, and they prepare for the Passover there. And when evening came, and Jesus and his disciples are reclining at the table, Jesus informs the group that one of them sitting around that table is going to betray him. 
And apparently, in the process of Judas going out and setting up this act of betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, nobody had a clue that he was a betrayer. Because everyone seemed shocked that anyone among their number would be someone that would be willing to do that. And so each one of them says, Surely not I, Lord. The 11 true disciples have no idea what has already been done against their Messiah by Judas. To those questions, each of these disciples asking, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replies, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. In this statement by Jesus, we see an example of God's sovereignty and the reality that every single one of us is personally responsible and culpable for every decision that we ever make. Right? Does God have absolute and ultimate control over his creation? Yes. Is there anything that is outside of God's control? No. So does that mean that Judas, who God knew all beforehand, before he was ever born, before God ever created him in his mother's womb, does that mean that Judas is just a pawn in God's plan and that there was nothing that Judas could do except follow the plan that God had laid out? Right? There's a lot of people that look at this and say, well, Judas had no choice in this matter. God made him do this. If so, then that means that Judas shouldn't be held responsible for his actions. Right? But that's not what we see here. It was divinely ordained that Jesus would go to the cross. That's a given. Okay? Nothing is going to change that. Jesus is going to the cross the next day. Jesus predicted, has predicted the cross four times in Matthew's gospel at this point already. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows that his time is short. The cross is going to happen. I mentioned last week how Psalm 22 pointed to the cross long before Judas had ever come on the scene. But that does not mean that Judas had to betray Jesus to get Jesus on the cross. Obviously, there's a lot of scheming that someone is doing, the religious leaders to be certain, and they're going to be accountable for that, the, all this scheming. But Judas did not have to be involved with the religious leaders' schemes. In fact, none of those people had to be involved with it. They all chose to be involved with this scheming and betrayal of the Messiah by their own free will. And God moved within the bounds of their own free will, knowing what they were going to do in order to achieve his plans of redeeming those who would put their faith in Christ by having him die on the cross if, and for those that would put their faith in him. 
This means that God ensured that His plan would happen just as it was written and that everyone who had a hand in it would be accountable for their role in it. But God did not make them do this. God worked in what he knew that they would do to ensure that salvation through the cross was going to happen. Jesus doesn't go into specifics about what that accountability is going to look like, but he says it would have been better for his betrayer not to have been born than for him to make the choice to betray the Messiah. Divine judgment awaited Judas for his decision to turn his back on Jesus. And that same divine judgment awaits everyone who refuses to repent of their sin and call Jesus Lord. At this point, the betrayer speaks up. Judas asks, Surely not I, Rabbi. Here, Judas probably felt like he had to speak up in order to avoid suspicion. Right? Everybody else has said something, so he feels like he needs to say something. He knows that Jesus knows that someone's going to betray him, but he doesn't yet know that Jesus knows exactly who's going to betray him. And according to the commentaries that I studied this week, Judas's question was asked in such a way in the original language that it anticipates a negative answer from Christ. Right? He expects Jesus to say something like, I don't know, it might be you, or it might be him, or him, or him. It could be any one of you. I just know that one of you is going to betray me. How could I know which one of you it's going to be? But Jesus doesn't answer that way, does he? He says, you have said it. And again, back to the original language, the way this phrase occurs, it affirms the question that's asked. All right? it, repl- it places the responsibility for the answer of that question on the person who is making the inquiry. We're going to see this occur a few more times in Matthew's gospel as he speaks with Caiaphas at his fake trial. And he's going to say the same thing to Pilate as well. He says, are you, when he says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you have said so. Right? So like, you have affirmed your own question. This reply confirms the truth that the one asking the question is trying to avoid. Judas, not, certainly not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, yeah, dude, it's you. To put it in my paraphrase. One thing that you should notice about Judas's reply is that it's different from the rest of the disciples. Did you notice that? The other 11 disciples refer to Jesus as Lord. Judas calls him Rabbi. We've seen this come up several times in Matthew's gospel. The only people that call Jesus Lord are his disciples. Everyone who calls Jesus Rabbi do not recognize him as the Messiah. We see this over and over again in the religious leaders. 
We saw this once with the rich young ruler. He comes up and says, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. He's not recognizing him as God, just as a good teacher. So if there's any doubt to this point, where Judas's heart is in any of this up to this point, he is making it clear that when he addresses Jesus, he does not address Jesus as Lord. He addresses him as rabbi. And there is no recorded instance of Judas ever referring to Jesus as Lord. To, to Judas, Jesus is just a teacher. Maybe he was an up-and-coming guy. He saw some popularity where people were following him. He thought, maybe this is an opportunity for me to become famous. Maybe it's an opportunity for me to line my pockets. We don't know what was the motivation for Judas to follow after Jesus, especially for the length of time that he did. But here he is, and to Judas, Jesus is just a teacher. Even though he saw the miracles even though he was in the presence of God himself, Judas did not believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And a quick question before we continue on. Do you see the difference between Jesus and the other teachers and the other religious leaders that the world has ever presented? Do you see the difference? Are you here today And would you say in your heart, would you look at Jesus and would you say, Lord, would you bow your knee in submission to all that he has commanded you to do, acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of a savior and out of your worship to him, would you do what he has called you to do? Or do you think he's just a guy that treated people pretty nice for the most part and is, has some good teachings that you're going to incorporate at some points of your life, but only as long as it doesn't get too complicated, as long as it doesn't get uh, too intense. Like, Where are you in this? Are you with the other 11 disciples who are shocked at this idea that someone would betray the Messiah and they say, Lord, Or would you be in the camp of Judas where somehow along the way Jesus has not measured up to whatever standard that you had set up for him and when it gets to the point where you have had enough, you're going to turn your back on him. You're going to betray him for whatever the world has to offer. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. For you, it might be a job, a relationship, a whatever. I mean, pick your idol. But where are you in this today? The most important question you will ever answer is what you have done with Jesus. The difference is significant. Your understanding of that difference has eternal consequences. And from here, Matthew's gospel continues on with the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let's look at these verses again, 26 to 29. Or 30, I'm sorry. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. 
Then he took a cup, and after offering and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many of the for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so there are several things about this night that Matthew's gospel doesn't address. There's no argument amongst the saints about which one of them is the best. That happens in Luke's gospel. There's no washing of the disciples' feet in Matthew's gospel. That happens in John's gospel. And so Matthew doesn't mention that Judas gets filled with, a, filled with Satan and leaves the group in order to continue on with this nefarious plan that he has with the chief priests. So he is left by the point verse 26 begins. But after he goes, Jesus shows us that the Passover, while being a huge part of Israel's heritage and being one of the major events in the people of God, like this is the event that God points back to over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament saying, did I not bring you out of slavery, right? He points back to the Passover. He points back to the Exodus. He says, this is huge in your life, but ultimately the Passover is a precursor to an even greater event in the life of God's people, which is going to be the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so we're seeing this new institution of the Lord's Supper, which is a representation of that death, burial, and resurrection. The bread and the wine that he gives to the disciples as a representation of his body and his blood have both already been previously blessed by the host, and they've been shared as representing parts of the Passover. All right, so Jesus takes these same elements and he associates himself with parts of the Passover as well. By breaking the bread and associating that with his body, Jesus is saying that his body will be the fulfillment of those ceremonies that surround the Passover lamb as he becomes the sacrificial atonement for the passing over of the sins of the people. So all that stuff that they had to go through to prepare for this celebratory feast Jesus is going to say, I'm going to be that for you. When Jesus takes up the wine, he associates the wine with his blood. During the Passover, the blood of a spotless lamb was smeared all over the doorway. During the Passover sacrifices, from that point forward, the blood of those lambs is poured out on the altar. But the blood that was used in these sacrifices were not sufficient sacrifices. Not ultimately sufficient. The reason those sacrifices had to be made over and over again is because they weren't ultimate. Right? The blood of an animal cannot ultimately cover the sins of a man or a woman. In this new covenant that Jesus is inaugurating with the spilling of his blood on the cross, we will find that his blood is sufficient to cover all of our sin forever. 
Everyone who will receive Jesus' invitation to partake of his sacrificial death on the cross will live in the blessings of this new covenant for eternity. Forever. There is no more going back to the altar with this sacrifice and that sacrifice. I mean, I cannot imagine. Like, you see the beauty. Uh, and I've heard of people who have attended the, I, I'm probably going to butcher this word, but the cedar or seder, seder, I think it's seder, uh, the seder meals. But can you imagine how much blood had to be waded through to get to that point? Every year. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands, right? So, I mean, if you have 150,000 people in Jerusalem and each one of those people needed a lamb, that's a lot of dead lambs. But Jesus is saying in this new covenant, one sacrifice is sufficient for all. And you don't have to keep coming back to the altar with this sacrifice over and over and over again. Jesus took our sin on himself, he paid the penalty of God's wrath, and it was sufficient. Past, present, and future, your sin can be covered fully and completely and eternally by the blood of Christ. And the last thing Jesus says here in verse 29 offers us what I referred to here as a sad, glad promise. All right, a sad, glad promise. He says that he will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so his death is imminent. Right? It's on its way. That's the sad part. It's sad that our sin required God to step out of glory to live as part of his creation in order so that he could take our sin on himself so that we could have his righteousness. But that is what was required for our relationship with the Father to be restored. And that's sad. He's going to take on our sin. He's going to take on God's wrath for that sin. But the glad part is that someday the disciples and all who repent of their sin and call Jesus Lord, not teacher, not rabbi, but Lord, all who repent of their sin and call Jesus Lord will one day partake of the fruit of the vine with him in the Father's kingdom. That's an eternal promise. Right? The sad, glad promise. One day, or soon, Jesus will die. But one day, these disciples will partake of the fruit of the vine in the Father's kingdom with Jesus once again. Another promise. If we have put our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, where His broken body and his shed blood have purchased our reconciliation with God the Father, then one day we will be face to face with Christ. That's going to either be through our death or through his return. And when this happens, we will be with him for eternity. This is what Jesus is going to do. The question is, are you ready for one of those two things to happen? 
Because just as Jesus' death was imminent, our death is also imminent. And if it doesn't happen first, Jesus' return is also imminent. These things are guarantees in our life. And it is also imminent that we will face judgment. And the question is, who is going to stand before God with our sin on their shoulders? Is it going to be you? Will you stand before God bearing the full burden of your sin? Or will Jesus stand in your place for you while you stand in his place covered by his blood and showing his righteousness? What's it going to be? Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to make that choice. And if you need to talk about that, if you're here, come see me after the service. If you're listening online, email me, text me. Don't call me. I'm just kidding. You can call me. But I'm, I'm here. I'm here for you. I want to be someone who walks with this walks through this with you. And I want us to be a church that sees people coming to faith often because we are going out from this place with this message and we see people loving God, turning from death to life and seeing people filled with the Holy Spirit and watching what they do for God's kingdom as we go out of here. And I'm going to leave you with that. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful for the cross. I mean, it breaks my heart that my sin made the cross necessary. But I'm grateful that you love me and all who would repent and call Jesus Lord enough to send Jesus to bear the burden of that for us. Lord, I pray that the realities of judgment would be it would be pressing in on us. That we would see our own judgment and the judgment of people around us as realities. And that if there's anybody that is listening today and that they have any questions or they have a decision that they need to make, God, please... Please, please, please have them make that decision today. Don't wait. Lord, it's my desire that we would see lives changed, that we would see hearts come from death to life, but we need the Holy Spirit's work to do that. So empower us with that, embolden us with that, that we would see all these promises of these future realities of eternity and that we would hold fast to those and it would push away any fear that things of this world might bring to us. Fears of rejection, fears of being thought of as weird. Well, the reality is eternity is going to be long. Hell is going to be awful. And your face is going to be amazing to see. I long for that day. I love you. It's in your son's name that I pray.